This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The national defense strategy really focuses us on near-peer competitors. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist. Everything that we do in space, a lot of it can be applied to our life on Earth. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. Three-time Pulitzer Prize finalist Rukmini Kalamaki joined the New York Times in 2014 as a foreign correspondent covering al-Qaeda and ISIS. She is also the host of the hit podcast, The Caliphate. Her reporting has earned her several prestigious journalism awards, including the Michael Kelly Prize and the George Polk Award for International Reporting, as well as multiple overseas press club awards. Before joining the Times, Kalamaki spent seven years covering a 20-country beat in Africa, first as a correspondent and later as West Africa bureau chief for the Associated Press. She began her career as a freelancer in India in 2001. As she will say, she was lucky enough to get one of the last seats on a plane to the state of Gujarat on the day of a catastrophic earthquake, and she filed her first story for Time magazine. I sat down with Rukmini to discuss her fascinating career path and what it's like reporting for war zones as well as the future of ISIS. Rukmini Kalamaki, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your background. Your family fled Romania when it was under communist rule. You ended up living in Switzerland for a few years before being granted asylum here in the U.S. Sure. How did that shape your worldview? What was that experience like? So I think the first thing is, number one, I'm an immigrant. And I'm not just an immigrant once. and I'm, I'm, I'm really an immigrant three times over because we went from Romania to Germany, Germany to Switzerland, Switzerland to the States. Each time I had to learn the language again. And beyond that, we were political refugees. We were coming from what was considered then a downtrodden uh, country uh, behind the Iron Wall in Romania, in Europe. We were seen as poor. We were seen as somehow being in the lower class, even though my parents were doctors. Uh, And so I think the way it's shaped me is, and I I didn't realize this until much later, but I've always had the sense of being the outsider. I'm never the person who fits in. (laughs) Um, My name is strange. My family history is different. Uh, And there was was a point, I remember, in in late elementary school, I think, I'm now living in California, where I finally somehow made peace with this, you know, that I'm just always going to be a little bit different. You know, I'm not 100% American. I'm certainly not Romanian anymore. Um, And this has helped me because in a way, the people that I cover are the ultimate outsiders. I'm covering ISIS now, but for seven years when I was living in West Africa, uh, I went from civil war to civil war, coup d'etat to coup d'etat. And and you're always dealing with people on the fringes um, who have grievances, who have who, who feel that they are not welcomed in society in some way, and and I think that has helped me have some level of empathy. I think for them, and it probably makes it easier for you to engage and talk with them. Possibly, possibly. Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that there, there's amazing reporters who don't have this experience and who also do this work very well. Mm-hmm. 
And now before we dive into talking more about the people you cover, I have to ask, you have a master's in linguistics from yes. Oxford, yes. and you I read where you at one point considered getting a PhD in Sanskrit. PhD in linguistics. In, lingu- in linguistics. And in- uh, I was studying Sanskrit sort of on the side. Um, and I had a very smart, <laughs> very smart Dawn at Oxford uh, who sat me down, and she knew I wasn't really into it. Um, and she said, listen you really have to be dedicated to this. This is not just something that you sign up for and a couple years later you get your PhD. You know, you people get stuck in this particular rut and and end up spinning their wheels for year after year. So you really need to think hard and think to yourself, is this what I want to do? And it wasn't. And the thing was that I had I had at that point invested so much time mm-hmm. um, and and resources to get there. And so it was really hard to step away and go, this isn't right for me. Um, I know there's something else. I just don't know how to get there and and start over. And how did you end up in journalism? I ended up in journalism because I had been studying Sanskrit as part of my coursework mm-hmm. um, at Oxford. And the real seat of Sanskrit learning is a city called Pune uh, in India. India. So I had started going during my vacations to, to Pune, where I was studying with a Sanskrit pundit, as they called it. And at a certain point, I realized that this is it. It's not, it's not the studies themselves, it's the movement back and forth. Um, it's the ability to go into this completely different space and try to understand it that makes me excited. Not the, you know, not the months on end of studying the Romanian infinitive, which is what my master's thesis was about. <laughs> um, anyway, and that propelled me to start as a freelancer in India. I and really you covered bond. a major earthquake there? I did cover a major, major earthquake, which was the highlight, but I was there for a year, and I published extremely little. Uh, the earthquake was one of just several clips that I had in that entire year, so that was really the start of my credit card debt. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I didn't understand that there's an entire craft you know, behind, behind journalism. I was arrogant, and I thought, this can't be that hard. Um, and I realized at the end of that year, I really have to back up and do this the right way. And the right way is to start at some small newspaper. And so I ended up getting... And you did. And I did. I got an internship at a, a small newspaper in Illinois called The Daily Herald. Um, and I went from covering an earthquake that had killed tens of thousands of people right. to covering Christmas tree lighting ceremonies, quite literally. Yes. <laughs> um, and that was the start of a very long process that took more than five years mm-hmm. um, of paying my dues. And of learning this craft, which on the outside of it looks easy, but as you know, is not. Um, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> and there's a lot to it. It's not just writing. It's not just talking to people. There's there's an entire framework that you have to that you have to somehow digest. Yeah. And so I I started there. I ended up um, in a junior position at the AP. Um, I was on the night shift. Uh, I ended up uh, moving to New Orleans for the AP. I covered Hurricane Katrina. And um, and then finally in 2006. So so the earthquake was 2001. Mm-hmm. But finally, 2006, I was posted as an actual foreign correspondent for the AP in West Africa. And there you began covering conflict zones, war zones. Uh, you found a cache of Al-Qaeda documents yes. in Mali. Yes. Uh, you cover terrorists. Yes. And yes. terrorism. What's that like? So it came slowly. Um, when I first moved to West Africa, uh, I remember my then bureau chief telling me, um, we have a stringer in Mauritania, a stringer meaning a local correspondent who mm-hmm. occasionally sends us copy. 
And he's filing a lot of copy about this group called the GSPC, this very minor rebel group. Um, just ignore it. It's really not a big deal. The GSPC is the entity that ended up pledging allegiance to Al-Qaeda um, almost a year later. And at that point, it didn't look like a big deal. But within a few years of me being there, they had begun to carry out attacks all over the Sahel. And little by little, I saw this enormous stretch of territory that I, as a foreign correspondent, could cover. Mm -hmm. I saw it shrink because it's suddenly, suddenly this part of that country is no longer safe. This part of that country is no longer safe. If you go there, you have to, you know, go through enormous procedures, safety, um, safety and security measures that you have to take. And so I saw the world shrink as a result of a group that at that point in time we estimated had maybe a few dozen members, maybe, maybe 200, 300. And in 2012, that same entity, which by then was Al-Qaeda's affiliate in the mm -hmm. region, succeeded in taking over the northern half of Mali. The territory that they took in conjunction with other jihadists was equal in size to Afghanistan. And they held it for wow. almost a year. Wow. And that was one of the turning points for me where I began covering this sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. A lot of people know you from your Caliphate podcast, which is fabulous, uh, and the conversation you had with a former jihadist, a former member of the Islamic State. What's the most important thing you learned from talking to him? What do we need to understand? Yeah. Huseifa, um, who's the young Canadian that we, that we interviewed, is important to me in a number of ways, but perhaps the most significant of the things he told us is what we see with ISIS members is once they're, once they're back in the West or once they're arrested, they're willing at most to describe the crimes that they saw, that they witnessed. They would have been present for a beheading. They might have seen a stoning or a crucifixion, but they're very careful to never implicate themselves. And what was unique about Huseifa is if we take him at his word, he confessed on tape to murdering two people in in really detailed, you know, step by step. These are the things that were going through my mind um, kind of narration. And what he did for me is he he took me through the mental steps, which are not one or two or even a dozen. It's it's literally like a hundred little steps that take somebody that that on the face of it looks like a really normal person. You know, he comes from a loving family. Um, he had a stable background. He had no real grievances as a Muslim in Canada. He told us that he was treated well. And yet, and yet within a number of years, he ends up being the person that is holding a knife and getting, it, getting ready to thrust it into another human being. And he broke that down for us and explained how he got there. Of course, it's his story and it's his telling. And, and we are, of course, we're, you know, we don't know 100% if he's telling us the truth. Right. But there's no way to is, verify. There's no way to verify much of what he said. But if he's telling us the truth, I found it quite compelling um, because it explains that for him it wasn't easy. You know, that we, we look at these people and we look we, we think of them as psycho killers, as, you know, these these murderous, insane, boogeyman type figures who must be thirsty for blood. And he describes how much work he had to do to be able to be that person, to do that. And, and there's, to me, there was something hopeful about that, that this doesn't come easily. Killing another human being does not come easily. Um, and, and perhaps there's intervention that can be done along the way. But I also read where you said by the end of the podcast, you were concerned that he was more radicalized yes. now than yes. when you initially yes. spoke with him. Yes. And that the officials in Canada are 
attempting to prosecute him. Yeah. So the big thing that happened between the beginning of the podcast and the end is when we went to speak to him, we were the very first people to get in a room with him and talk to him. Mm -hmm. Literally 12 hours, like not even 12 hours after we left, Canadian law enforcement came in and essentially banged down his door. And so I think this is my my theory. I Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's true, but um, what I believe happened is he got back from Syria. He got through the airport. He was very nervous about going through the airport. He thought he was going to get caught. He gets through and realizes, oh, I'm I'm through. That's mm-hmm. th- I'm not on any list. I've slipped the net. Right. And I think he thought he was safe. Mm-hmm. And he had a couple of months to stew and to think about the awful things that he had allegedly done. And when I showed up, what he told us is that he was he was feeling really horribly about what he had done, and that he was looking for closure. And so he spoke. And immediately after, Canadian intelligence begins interrogating him. And the interrogations went on for months. And so I think what happened is this this feeling of safety that he had evaporated. He began to fear that he was going to be prosecuted, arrested, etc. Um, and then he became angry. He started to, you know, lash out. Why are these people following me? Why is there a car parked inside of, in front of my house? And then going to these crazy thoughts. They're doing this because I'm a Muslim. It's only because I'm a Muslim that they're doing this to me. No, they're not doing this because you're a Muslim. They're doing this because you you admitted on tape to killing two people in the name of the Islamic State, a terrorist organization. <laughs> um, and so when we and you him, spent time in Syria. And you spent time in Syria. He has since tried to back down on the murders. He has never backed down on having joined ISIS. Um, and so by the time that a year and a half passed between my first interview and when we saw him the last time, and when we saw him the last time, he was just full on cocky, you know, and um, they have no right. They have nothing on me. They're not going to get me. And it was a very different look than when than where we began. Much has been said about ISIS losing the territory yes. in Syria that um, it has been defeated. You've written recently that ISIS hasn't been defeated. The attacks still continue. So are we letting our guard down? Look, I think I feel like we've been in this situation before. To me, it's, it's like a moment of deja vu. I saw this with, with Al-Qaeda. Every politician who comes into office wants to claim credit for having defeated and defanged this group. What has happened with ISIS is not insignificant. It is important that that their territorial caliphate has been erased. This was a big deal. They held a, a territory the size of Great Britain. That is now gone. But the conclusions that are being drawn from that, the territory is gone, therefore the group is gone, are just wrong. And it's not just me that's saying it. It's also Seth Jones at CSIS. It's also all of pretty much all of the major um, ISIS analysts. ISIS remains as an organization with a hierarchy. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, as far as we know, is still alive. The spokesman of ISIS still alive. Major leaders still alive. Um, and, and they are now just reverting to their insurgent roots. This was a group that was an insurgency for the first decade of its existence. Uh, it then created this territorial entity that it called a state in 2014. And in a way, the state, the, the period of time when they held territory, that's the blip on the radar. That's the anomaly. The, 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 the baseline is what it was before, when it was an insurgency in Iraq that killed thousands of people without ever holding much land at all. And that's where it is now, I think. And there are still the people like the young man that you interviewed who are out there yeah. and the conditions that allowed 
him to be created and allowed other people who are in ISIS. They still exist. But what do countries do? In the one hand, uh, what do they do about the people who are coming back from Syria or at least attempting to come back from Syria? And what do they do to keep other people from going down the same path that you described so well? Right. I don't think that we've figured it out. I mean, what um, Ali Sufan, uh, who was who was a special uh, FBI agent during the time of Al Qaeda, um, he he makes the following comparison. He talks about how on the eve of 9/11, all over the world, the total number of Al Qaeda fighters that ex- existed was at most a few hundred. Mm-hmm. So a few hundred people succeeded in taking down the towers in New York, um, the Pentagon, the airplanes, etc. Now, just al-Qaeda has tens of thousands of members uh, around the world. ISIS, according to General Vogel in a statement that he made in February, has tens of thousands of members, fighters, facilitators, just in Iraq and Syria. Um, So it seems we've taken all of these steps since 9-11 that are intended to have degraded this group. And in in some ways we have Osama bin Laden's been killed. Many other famous jihadists have been have been have been taken off the battlefield. But for some reason, these entities just keep growing. They keep growing in membership, uh, and and it's like this oil that just kind of has seeped out and now is going to all of these different areas. It's metastasized. And I don't know that we figured out how to get a handle on it. As we wrap up here, uh, a final couple questions. Uh, do you ever personally feel threatened because of the work you do, the people you cover, the people you interview? <laughs> sure. And having seen all that you've seen, what keeps you up at night? Um, I have felt threatened. And luckily, I have just really compassionate editors that have helped me um, put in a security plan and helped me you know, make sure that I'm taken care of in the different places where I go. Um, so that's how I handle that. Uh, what bothers me right now is that we are we are repeating a mistake that we have repeated so many times before. Um, President Bush, you know, made the unfortunate mission accomplished uh, statement years ago. That should have been a cautionary tale to anybody who came after that this is this is just not a good thing to say about these entities. Um, Osama bin Laden's death was described as as uh, the head of the snake having been cut off. Um, the group has been decimated, degraded. It's on the run, etc. Turned out not to be true, and now we're doing the same thing with ISIS, and and this is being combined with a radical drawdown in our troops um, in this area. Unfortunately, that's exactly how ISIS rose to to the current prominence it had. It was the pullout in 2011 that created the vacuum that in part allowed this group to 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 metamorphose into what it became. So I worry that we're just repeating um, the lessons of the past and that um, I certainly hope I'm wrong, but I would hate for this issue to be redressed as a result of tens or dozens of people being killed in another terrorist attack, in another Paris attack. Right. Because that that is, of course, the long game for these groups. That's what they're trying to do. Rukmini Kalamaki, I could talk to you for hours, but we've run out of time. Thank Thank you you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure, Beverly. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time. (laughs) 